Thanks, Ruth. Thanks, team. Well, it was when about um, my son, Micah, our son, Micah, was about four or five years old. Um, he was obsessed by football. He's still obsessed by football, uh, with football, and um, I don't know where he gets that from. Uh, it must be his mum, I'm sure. Um, but it was a particular weekend at the end of a particular round of football, and and one of his uncles asked him, how is the football going, Micah? And Micah said at the age of four, well, the West Coast Eagles are having a sensational season. <laughs> and everyone in the room just kind of laughed. It was, it was hilarious, these words coming out of this little boy. And uh, I'm sure if you're a parent, uh, along with me, you can probably think of other examples of some of the funniest moments in parenting when our small little kids pull out some pretty big words and, uh, and maybe some grown-up words. And even the funniest parts of this are quite often when they actually make sense, <laughs> when they've actually used them properly. Uh, and they're actually uh, in context and it, it works and you kind of go, where on earth did they learn that from? I've got no idea. But it's actually quite funny. You have had, uh, had an adult said that the Eagles are having a sensational year, it wouldn't have been that funny, wouldn't it? It, would, it was just because it was coming out of the mouth of a four-year-old. Now, with 171-odd thousand words in the English language and another 47,000-odd that we don't even use anymore, there are probably many words that even adults, even you and I, don't actually know. Um, these words are probably many. Um, they're probably often quite large, quite long words for whatever reason. Maybe they're harder to say. Maybe they don't quite roll off the tongue. Maybe they're harder to remember. Um, but there's many reasons why we would use a big word, isn't there? Do you want to learn a few big words this morning? Sure. Okay. Well, you're going to. So... <laughs> Because I've practiced these very carefully. (laughs) So we do use big words for many reasons. Sometimes we use big words to make ourselves sound smarter. Do you know what that's called? It's called grandiloquence. Grandiloquence is when we use words to help make ourselves sound smarter. Can everyone say that with me? Grandiloquence. Grandiloquence. Very well done. Now you can tuck that away and use that sometime maybe to make yourself sound smarter. (laughs) Sometimes we use big words to um, maybe answer a question without really answering the question. I'm sure you can think of maybe some TV interviews or radio interviews with politicians that might go something like this. This is called circumlocution. Do you know that one? Circumlocution, everyone can say that with me. Circumlocution. Very well done. Sometimes we use big words to um, hide something or to confuse people. Uh, This is called obfuscation. Is that confusing? (laughs) Very good, very good. And uh, sometimes, maybe, maybe you're this person. Maybe you already know all these words. Maybe you actually enjoy using words like these. Lots of words like these. Do you know what that's called? That's called susquipedalian loquaciousness. 
Honestly, that's, that's the term for it. I, I did practice that many, many times this week. So scripidalian loquaciousness. A loquaciousness means um, using lots of words. You know, you're talking a lot. So scripidalian, kind of humorously, comes from the Latin meaning foot and a half long. So, so scripidalian loquaciousness basically means using a whole lot of foot and a half long words. Very good. Well, there's another reason why we use lots of big words, or sometimes we use big words, or even weighty kind of words, and that is because quite often they're more precise, aren't they? They're, they're more nuanced, perhaps, or more, um, more specific to a particular circumstance or a particular meaning, and so sometimes there's simply no other word for it than to use a big word. And the Bible actually has a lot of big words in it, and big terms, big ideas, these kind of weighty words. And when the Bible uses these long words, it's, it's not circumlocution or obfuscation or sesquidelian loquaciousness or whatever it is. The Bible uses these long words because they actually mean something. They have an incredible meaning and there is no real other term to use to get that meaning out of it. And so I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, I am tempted just to gloss over words, maybe to breeze past these words. Uh, Maybe I just can't be bothered researching them or digging into them deeper, finding out what they really mean. Perhaps sometimes I feel like I already know what they mean, um, and maybe I kind of know and I can kind of use them in the right sentence, but secretly maybe I'm a bit like using the word sensational as a four-year-old. <laughs> maybe I don't really know the full depth and meaning of that term. But what happens when we do that is that we rob ourselves sometimes of the, the real depth and the real power of God's Word and the Scriptures if we don't take the time sometimes to find out more about what these terms mean. Today we're starting a brand new series on the book of Romans. And um, the book of Romans is one of my favourite books of the Bible. The book of Romans is a letter written by Paul to the church in Rome and he explains in incredible detail and in incredible um, clarity what God did for us through Jesus on the cross and what God does for us through his Holy Spirit living in each and every one of us. And, and this book of Romans is an incredibly encouraging book, an incredibly inspiring book. And in fact, I reckon all Christians should read the book of Romans at least once a year. And maybe in this series, uh, you would consider reading through the book of Romans as we go through this series. But this series isn't going to be a chapter-by-chapter chapter step through the book of Romans. It's not even going to be a section-by-section walk through the book of Romans. What we're going to do in this series is explore some of the big words and the big themes and those weighty kind of words that the book of Romans uses so that we really get a depth of understanding, Uh, almost like a, a, a language. It gives us language around our grace story our story of our salvation, not only so that we can understand it better ourselves, but also so that we can in turn 
share that amazing grace story with others who need to hear it. Is that all right? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to hear terms like atonement and sanctification and propitiation and regeneration and all sorts of Asians. And um, we're going to journey through these words. And today, we're going to be speaking about a word that appears more in the book of Romans than any other book of the Bible. And the, the word is condemnation or condemn. The word condemnation typically means that it's the de- declaration of something to be someone or someone to be wrong or evil or bad. The declaration of something or someone to be wrong or evil or bad in some way. In the courtroom setting, if you are condemned, you are both convicted of the crime that you have committed and told that you are guilty, and then you are also sentenced to the punishment, the consequence of whatever crime you have committed. So the word condemnation incorporates the ideas of both conviction of guilt and sentencing of consequence. Very good. So, if the book of Romans then is all about what good stuff God has done for us, all about what Jesus did for us on the cross and what the Holy Spirit does in our lives, why then did Paul use the word condemnation so many times? Well, to understand the the term condemnation in the context of Christianity and our faith, we have to rewind back from the book of Romans a bit. We have to rewind past Acts, past the Gospels, past the Minor Prophets, the Major Prophets, the Wisdom Literature, right to the start of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 1. And of course, God in Genesis chapter 1 creates the universe, doesn't he? And everything in it, with what? What does God use? His words. That is the power of God, that he has created everything just with his words. That is incredible, wouldn't you say? Amazing power of our God. And he creates everything and it's good and he creates men and women and they're very good and he is so just pleased with how everything has been made and everything works together in perfect harmony that he takes the seventh day off and he has a rest and he celebrates, he sits on the couch and he turns the footy on and he falls asleep somewhere in the second quarter. He takes it, that's, that's what I'll be doing today anyway. <laughs> but God, he rested on the seventh day. And Adam and Eve were in this perfect union, perfect garden, this environment which was just perfect. And what's more, they were in the presence of God constantly. They were walking around, living, talking, breathing with the Creator, God. But God had one rule for this garden, didn't He? He had one, one rule. Just don't touch or eat from that one tree that's in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just don't go there. Don't go there and you'll be fine. If you do do that, you will die. God lays out the law and he 
tells us the consequence of breaking that law. And, of course, it doesn't seem too much longer, and we don't really know how much longer, but it doesn't seem too long before Adam and Eve are tempted by that one tree out of the millions of other possibilities. That one tree is too tempting, and they go and they grab a piece of fruit and they take a big old bite. It's at this point in the story where I often stop and I think, Adam and Eve, man, I hope that piece of fruit was tasty. That piece of fruit must have been the best piece of fruit you've ever tasted. Please tell me it was awesome. Please tell me at least you ate all of it. Because look at the consequences of eating that one piece of fruit. Boy, it must have been good. I hope it was worth it, Adam and Eve. Deary me. And of course, God catches them, doesn't he? Red-handed and he calls them convicted and guilty and he sentences them to the appropriate consequence of breaking that crime. They are condemned. Now, was Adam and Eve's crime to eat a piece of fruit? Was that their crime? Well, probably not really. I mean... I'm sure we can all go home today. If we get a fruit salad for lunch, we can be pretty confident that none of that fruit is going to be damaging to our souls or our eternities. That's not, it's not the fruit. It wasn't the fruit. You see, God had wanted so desperately to stay in the presence of the people that he created and had them live in his presence for all of eternity that he said, just don't touch that one tree. Don't touch that tree. Not being a killjoy, but because he knew that the consequences of that was death. And the consequences of death meant separation from him. And that was the last thing that he wanted for the loved people that he had created. You see, Adam and Eve's real crime was to decide for themselves that it was up to them to choose what was good and evil and not to trust in what God said was good and evil. That is what sin is. Sin is when we choose for ourselves what is good and what is evil as opposed to trusting in what God says is what is true, what is good, what is evil. And so... The problem with that is that God's standard is so high. God's standard is perfection, is beyond perfection, is beyond whatever we could even understand as perfection. And our standard is just compared to God's. It's, it's way, way, way down here. And so if we take it upon ourselves to choose what is good and what is not good, our standard is always going to be down here. And therefore, we can never match God's standard and therefore never be able to spend eternity or any time in His presence. God knew this, and so He said, don't touch the fruit of that tree, but they did it anyway. The fact is, though, that it wasn't just Adam and Eve, was it? 
each and every one of us, regularly walk up to that tree, take a piece of fruit, and take a big old bite. Whenever we decide for ourselves that it's our decision what good is and what evil is, and we don't trust what God has said. And the book of Romans, which we're talking about today in this series, Paul says, describes it like this. He says, For all have sinned, every one of us, and we've fallen short of God's glorious standard. We've fallen short of glorious standard. We are all condemned. All of us. Every time we take a piece of that fruit, we have to bear the same consequences as Adam and Eve did. Fast forward in our biblical story a fair bit, and we get to the story of Moses. Moses and the Israelites. And um, God wants to create a new nation of these people, a nation that will be set apart, will be made holy, will be made different compared to the nations around. And he provides a, a constitution of sorts, a set of laws, the Ten Commandments and the, the law of Moses, to not only set this nation apart as different and holy in the context of the nations around them, but also to reflect their holy God. But also as an act of God's mercy. Do you know what mercy is? It's another one of those weighty words. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. You see, his people deserved the consequences of sin. And, but in his mercy, God gave his people the law, or what we know as the law of Moses, so that they could work at moving from their standard being down here. If they followed the law, to their standard being back up here again, and therefore being allowed to live in God's presence once again. The problem with that, though, is that it was just temporary. That's what it seemed like, because all through the story of God's people of Israel, they would be right with God for a moment, and then they would sin, and everything would go bad. But then they'd make a sacrifice and atone for that sin. That's another term that we're going to be looking at later in the series. And then they'd be right with God again. And then they would sin. And things would fall apart again. And, but then they would make a sacrifice, and they'd be right with God again, and then they would sin. And then they'd make a sacrifice, and they'd be right with God again. And over and over and over again, this cycle would happen. For thousands of years, this cycle would happen. Until God, again, in His incredible mercy, His incredible mercy, even though his people deserved something else. We read in John 3.16 what he does, don't we? He says, for God so loved the world, for God wanted to spend eternity with you and me so badly that he sent his one and only son. So that whoever believes, not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes 
we'll be able to avoid death, the consequences of our sins that we actually deserve. In God's mercy, once again, he gave us his one and only son. And you see, this, this verse, this passage actually continues. It says, for he didn't just send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. We know what that means now, but to save the world through him. In verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. There it is. Whoever believes in him is no longer condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. You see, the the good news here is that condemnation is now an opt-out scenario. Through Jesus, our default is condemnation. Because each and every one of us regularly eats from that tree. And yet, because of Jesus, we have the choice to opt out of that and into life. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible? What Jesus has done for us? And so the book of Romans, Paul is teaching us about this, reminding us about this when he uses um, this term, In chapter 8, and these kind of famous verses, I suppose, chapter 8, verses 1 to 2, where he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. You see, Paul explains why there is no condemnation condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I invite the band to come up now. He explains why this is the case. And here it is. It's because when we accept Jesus into our lives, when we accept Jesus and ask him to come in and live inside of us and to take over the decisions of our lives, he implants a piece of himself in us. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. And the Holy Spirit, He brings so many incredible things to our lives. So many incredible things to our lives. But one of the most important things that He does for each and every one of us is that He automatically lifts our standard from down here all the way back to up here again. And the Bible tells us that there will be a day where we enter a kind of courtroom and there'll be a judge, God. And on this day, God will judge each and every one of us and judge us according to the same rules that Adam and Eve had, the same consequences. But if we are in Christ Jesus, we will stand before God 
And despite how many times we've visited that ugly tree, despite how many times we've taken a bite out of that disgusting fruit, God will see himself in us. God will see himself, his Holy Spirit, in us. And instead of condemnation, he will say, come, spend eternity with me. Isn't that sensational? (laughs) Isn't that amazing? That is God's incredible mercy. That is why Paul chose to use the word condemnation so many times in the book of Romans because he was reminding us that we can opt out if we choose to. If we choose to follow Jesus. And on that day, when the judge looks at us, for those who are in Christ Jesus, mercy will triumph over judgment. <laughs>